Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Good morning, everybody. My name is Sally Sheik. I'm a UTPGYB PMNR resident here with Dr. Sianka. Thank you very much for joining this morning, Dr. Sianka. Will you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your practice here in Houston? Sure. Uh, I came to Houston from Rochester, New York, where I did my, I grew up and also did my residency at the University of Rochester. Uh, I was the first musculoskeletal fellow at the Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, that was in 1992. Uh, fellowship at that point was a rare thing. There was probably only a handful of us at that time doing fellowships. And uh, excuse me. Um, and as a result of the fellowship, uh, Dr. Grayboys, who was the chairman at Baylor College of Medicine at that point, um, had the uh, insight and the courage to branch out and start an outpatient-based practice that was, you know, entirely outpatient, no inpatient uh, contributions. And, and uh, that was my practice when we started. Um, I thank him for that because it, it became my career, which was my intent, but at the time, nobody knew what it was. It was just an area that we didn't do. And so it was entirely outpatient-based musculoskeletal care. And, and that was um, an area that was germinating in our field at that time and subsequently has, has grown quite a bit. And now half of the members of the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation are outpatient-based musculoskeletal practitioners. So that was the beginning of my career. Uh, I, I worked alongside a uh, physical therapy group and that later had changed hands several times, uh, landed in Tears Lap and then when Tier was bought by Memorial Hermann, it's now subsequently we're uh, under Memorial Hermann's uh, purview. And I've worked with them still to this day, but alongside of them in the same facility until 2016 when I um, we just decided we needed different spaces. So I moved to my own office at that point. Um, the other significant thing about my practice is that in 2004, I started a cash-based practice. In other words, I, I wasn't filing any private insurance. And in 2013, I stopped taking Medicare. So now everything I do is based on a, a cash model, which is a very different thing and, and probably a little bit antiquated, but you know, my practice is small, uh, but it's very intimate and very much uh, 
allows me to practice the way I think is important for people. Uh, it's really not about money. It's about being able to do what I think is right and what I'm good at with with my career. All right. What a incredible background. So now uh, in Houston, what does your practice look like in terms of uh, your patient population? And well, it's still uh, an outpatient based, all musculoskeletal predominantly. Uh, it's young and old. I, I have several active younger patients in their uh, teens. I've actually seen a four year old in the past who had a posterior cruciate ligament injury. Um, but I see a lot of older adults, both uh, young, young, older, and older, older. <laughs> um, I think my oldest patient now is 95 years old. And uh, the, the premise is uh, that I use sports medicine principles. Yes, I'm board certified in sports medicine as well as acupuncture, and I have training and certification in ultrasound. Um, but I don't differentiate my patients by their activity, right? In other words, I don't treat athletes one way in the general population another. Everybody gets treated the same, and that's using a sports medicine model. So in my mind, sports medicine isn't a patient population. It's a treatment paradigm, if you will. So that's that's how I approach my patients. Um, the diagnoses I see are, are acute and chronic. Uh, axial and appendicular. So I see spine as well as, you know, joint and muscle problems. Um, I do some procedures, um, but I see people just uh, to prescribe exercise and or physical therapy. I probably, you know, do that most and procedures take up maybe a quarter or perhaps a third of my practice at that. All right. Okay. And related to your talk, um, what was your role in Houston Marathon? I was the medical director, so I over developed and oversaw all of the uh, build out development uh, and implementation of the medical care at the race for runners and volunteers. And, and as I said early on in my presentation, I had a lot of help. So I had very good people to rely on that that helped me organize and oversee a team of 500 plus people. And what, what would you say, what problems are specific to uh, marathons in general? Or, uh, well, I, I would say long distance road racing is probably a better way to look at it. Certainly a marathon sees more than most. Uh, it's illness really more than injury. Yes, we see injury, but most people are that are need significant care are sick. And now that could be hydrational problems, temperature problems, uh, could run into cardiac or pulmonary issues. Um, and those are the main groups, you know, and it can be uh, severe. I mean, we see people that were, you know, critically in, ill and had needed immediate care, but, you know, others that we can turn around pretty quickly with some simple and, and tried and true methods. Now, that being said, you know, I did mention that, you know, the majority of the stuff we see is non-severe. And so that could be things like cramps and, and muscle strains and just fatigue, a lot of fatigue after a race of that size. And, and people don't know what they're supposed to feel like. So they're all, they're tired, they're hurt, they're sore. You know, that sort of gets washed away as they stop and recover and get hydrated. 
and feel better. So a lot of what we see is bring them in, give them a little bit of support and send them on their way. But we have to be ready for some very severe conditions. Uh, and we see them every year. So you mentioned the uh, the finish line is a busy place um, for uh, for events. What what do you what do you see at the finish line? Well, it's a very dramatic area, right? People are coming across elated, um, mostly. Some people are disappointed, and some people are fully extended. In other words, they got nothing left, and they stop and they collapse for one reason or another. Now, a lot of that collapses from the fact that they just stopped, right? So we don't like people to just stop. We keep them moving because as soon as they stop, all that blood that's in their legs isn't going back up to their heart and their brain, and they collapse, which is called, you know, uh, athletic uh, collapse. And it's really not a big deal if you just keep them moving. It won't happen at all. And the treatment for it is just get their legs up so they're and keep get them to start moving so they get the blood back to their brain and uh, their heart. So, you know, you see that, but then a preponderance of sudden cardiac arrest happens at the finish line. And it can be before the finish line, it could be just past the finish line. It's, you've gotta be very alert because it can happen in just a second. And of course, then you, you know, you, you, the other thing that's going on there is just the, the frenetic activity. Lots of people, lots of noise, everything happening fast. So you've got to be sort of on alert all the time to, to see and to react uh, to whatever might need your attention. All right. Um, in your years of involvement with the Houston Marathon and other races, what would you say are some of the most common um, logistical or behavioral barriers to providing good care? Well, it's a pretty political environment, believe it or not. Uh, you, you've got to deal with, first off, the the other people in the organization that have a different agenda. Uh, in some respects, medical care is, is sort of a necessary evil, right? None of the race directors really know much about it and would prefer not to have to deal with it, but they do. I mean, it's a part of the responsibility of putting on a race. And so you've got to break that barrier where you've got to reach them and educate them as to why it's important to do certain things. It's an expensive endeavor. And a lot of races are run on a shoestring budget. So you get into these big races and they're multi-million dollar budgets. I had a $1.5 million budget. Uh, so it's not cheap. And you've really got to get people on board with why you need to do the things that are, are needed at a race. Um, so that's the first hurdle. The second is, is then managing your team in the midst of other volunteer teams, right? There's a lot of interaction and it's very important that medical people be given the right of way, because if we can't do our job, it's a problem for people that are participating. Our job is to keep people safe. If we can't get there, we can't succeed. And that looks bad for everybody involved. The other aspect of it is dealing effectively with outside community sources, police, the fire, they've got their own agenda. And a lot of times it's, it's they don't understand what is needed internally. They think they do, but they don't. Now that's changed a lot over the years and it's probably much less of a problem as it used to be. 
But when I first started, you know, it was sort of everybody was the outside was dismissive of us in terms of what oh, we know how to handle this. Don't don't worry about it. You know, we don't you know, you, you, we don't need to interface with you. And that's just not true because there's a lot to it and it's gotten more and more complicated as time has gone on. So there, there does need to be cooperation. There does need to be respect on both ends because without it, there's failure. So it's, it's a, the, the difficulties to answer your question are really getting people on board with what you do and getting them to understand what you need to succeed and how that is important for them as well. Uh, how did you find was the best way to convey that uh, to the people in charge? Well, I think first off, do a good job, you know, and that, that was our first order of business was to be prepared and to do the job well. And I think we did that for 23 years. The second is to be, and this is not my strong suit, to be honest with you. The second is to be diplomatic and to be able to reach across the table even when you know that what you're doing is right and what they're proposing to do is wrong, <laughs> you know, and so you've got to be able to sort of get them on board and, you know, to be honest about it, I don't have a lot of tolerance for things that I know are outright wrong, <laughs> but you sometimes have to do that in order to keep them in, in the same, on the same platform as you. So it's very challenging from a leadership point of view to, to deal with people that, aren't really either paying attention or giving you the do that you need with respect to what you need to do. I understand. I can imagine that's challenging. Lots, lots of different types of people. All right. So in your presentation, you mentioned the wet bulb globe temperature equation as a predictor of heat stress. Mm -hmm. This concept is interesting and fascinating to me. Would you uh, explain it to our listeners and maybe elaborate on what the different terms mean they can predict in terms of uh, adverse events for racers? Well, so the, it's really just a tool. Uh, you, you know, you can use temperature if you'd like, but humidity is a significant portion of heat stress, right? So if you're in a hot but dry climate, your ability to tolerate heat is much better in some respects in that you, you're able to dissipate heat and effectively cool your body. The other, on, the, on the flip side, what you're also doing is losing fluid at a very rapid rate. And so the dehydration in a hot, dry environment is, is significant and often hard to even keep track of. In a humid environment, your ability to cool is impaired. Sweating doesn't work because the water doesn't evaporate, the sweat doesn't evaporate, it just sits on your skin. So you're not effectively cooling. And so your body will then be much more inclined to overheat because the sweating mechanism isn't efficient anymore. And so that's what humidity does, right? The higher the humidity, the harder it is to dissipate heat via sweat, which is the primary way that we do it. Um, and so that's why that portion of the equation, the seven tenths of the equation that is based on humidity is sort of the critical issue. Ambient heat is is what it is. And, you know, it can if you're not humid, then 70 degrees is not a big deal. But if it's humid, 70 degrees becomes a very tough environment. Uh, radiant heat can add to it, but it, in and of itself, it generally isn't very influential. Um, you know, and and 
course, if it's a bright sunny day and the course is exposed, it will be more significant than if you're running in a course on a course that has shade and or clouds and, and things of that sort. So uh, humidity is there and it's particularly bad in the morning. And so that influences the temperature early. Um, ambient heat or ambient temperature tends to go up through the day, but you could start off quite cool. Radiant heat is really something that happens later than sooner. So humidity, on the other hand, is there from the start. So would you say humidity is the uh, the one that provides the greatest impact in terms of? Well, in terms of the equation, yes, absolutely. And um, so how do you factor in weather into uh, allocating resources on race day? Very important point, and that's why knowing what you're going to be dealing with is very helpful. And, you know, it's not always accurate, but it gives us at least something to work with. So 2017, we knew days in advance we were going to be facing a very challenging day. And we had to upregulate a lot of things, you know, the fluids that we'd use, uh, the number of uh, resources on the course, uh, the beds and medical, uh, we, we increased them 25%. Uh, you know, everybody was alert. We knew what we we're going to be dealing with. It was actually, we were very well prepared and it didn't turn out to be as bad as we thought in terms of the numbers, which I explained, but it was certainly warm. And, uh, you know, based on past experience, which was pretty tough those early years, we, we knew what we could be facing. Uh, so, being prepared is really the critical issue every year, particularly when you're faced with unusual conditions. And it, it, it's always good to know those ahead of time. Obviously, some things you won't know. At Boston, we didn't know there was going to be a terrorist attack. Uh, but, uh, you know, as much as you can, you should prepare. And, and that's to me, was the mantra, be prepared. So as a, as a medical director in charge of a large budget and a large number of people, how did you retain the agility to upregulate 25% three days before race day? Well, that's access to resources. And that, again, brings us back to the race organizers, right? They have to be able to, uh, you know, they I essentially have to answer to them, right? So they have to be on board and they have to understand what the, uh, the need and the risk is. And most times they do. And over the years, that became much easier because we had a working relationship, but early on, particularly if you're a new medical director, you've got to win those people over because they hold the purse strings. Uh, now, on the other hand, you could rely on donations and and uh, volunteer contributions. That's fine, but you you've got to be sure of what you're. You got to know what you need, and you got to be sure that you can get it. And uh, you know, it needs to be in place. It can't be possible. It's got to happen. Um, and so. You know, that, that week ahead of the race, we're getting everything ready. We've moved everything over to our site. Everything's set up. It's not a, you know, day of event. It's a multi-day preparation ahead of the event. All right. This is sort of a general organizational question. So after the race is over or any event, um, how have you found is the best way to effectively debrief so that every year improvement happens. Well, that's actually quite critical. And it's a what I do or did was I didn't even wait. We went the next day. We met in, in our office and went through everything. And you know, everybody's, you know, kind of prepares a brief for that day. 
uh, and then we review what went well first. I think that's important and, you know, extend congratulations to everybody that helped and then look at the things that could have been improved. And sometimes that's a critical issue and sometimes it's a minor issue, but it is very important to make sure that, and I do this internally first with my team, right? That we understand what we did well, what we didn't do as well as we should have or could have, and then to try and come up with some potential solutions for the next time. And then after that's done, ideally, uh, depend, and this will vary depending on the, the cooperation you have with other organizations, you should debrief with the local agencies too, uh, because that interface may have worked well, or it may not have. In, in early years, I remember being very frustrated at the fact that I wasn't getting cooperation from these outside agencies, and it made everything dangerous. You know, and it, there was the mis or the lack of communication that that really was the issue. Um, we didn't know what they were doing, and they didn't care to know what we were doing. Uh, so that got, of course, got better, but it was only through communication, right? And so it's very important to make sure that everybody is participating and, and that includes the debrief. Okay. All right, um, very good. And as a uh, residence, how can we get involved? Well, well, when I was doing it, we would always reach out to you actually, um, basically either myself or Dr. Chorley or Dr. Decker, we'd have uh, access to the rosters and we'd try to email or contact people and usually through the chiefs or, uh, and then, you know, kind of solicit involvement, try to secure that by getting people to sign in and volunteer officially. And then of course we'd have our pre-race meetings. So I'm not sure who the current medical director is um, at the race and I'm not sure how they're handling that. Uh, you could always go to the Houston Marathon website and um, volunteer and specifically as a medical volunteer, there's a, a site for volunteers and then a designation for medical volunteers. All right, Dr. Siaka, I think time's running a little short. Thank you so much for uh, talking to us and the listeners today. Really appreciate your time. Uh, You're welcome, Sal. Glad you were interested. So much. I hope you have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. 
Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.